Um, I wonder, what, what do you think is the one value that our society holds above all? What's the one value that is just, there's no contest for, for what can trump it? Because it's interesting, because this is a value that we have seen work its way out in loads of different ways. We saw it work its way out in the Brexit referendum. We saw it work its way out in the um, abortion referendum in the Republic. We see it working its way out through various elections, taking a place across Europe. And we see it working its way out in our day-to-day lives, on chat shows and on everything. The one value that our, our society places above everything else at the minute is this individual freedom. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that. There could be a lot of reasons why we value freedom above everything else. Um, It may be because, and I think in part it's because as we reject the idea of there being an authority above us other other than just other people, we want to then assert our own authority and become our own people and our own rulers and our own masters of our own fate. It could be that as we watch more American TV shows and more American films, we get more kind of Americanized and um, get obsessed about freedom and things like that. Zach's face at the minute's great. Uh, (laughs) um, But it's funny because this has been quite a switch in our society. Like, look, the the abortion referendum in the Republic's a really interesting one to take just for the simple fact that here was a really conservative Roman Catholic country within living memory for many of you. And for many of you, when the result of the referendum came through, it would have been really strange because if those of you who would have experienced time in the Republic would have known that, well, every person I met was a conservative Roman Catholic. They went to mass regularly. They listened to what the church said. And suddenly within a lifetime, that gets flipped on its head. And the virtue is no longer, and the value that they treasure is no longer um, an authority from outside of them, but rather it's their ability to rule themselves. Personal freedom. You know, there's the, the one thing we can't, we can't ever debate about its value at the minute is everybody should have the right to do what they want when they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But that last clause, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, is up for discussion. You know, like that's what we see debated around us as different people assert their freedom and say, I can do what I want, when I want, regardless of the consequences, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But we begin to see that we live in a world filled with other people and treating freedom in that way isn't quite as black and white as we would like it, like it to be. So we have debates about free speech. We have a unit in the UK for dealing with Um, non-criminal hate incidents for people who are saying whatever they want, but then also it's not technically a crime. We encounter this weird gray area where what happens whenever our freedom impinges on other people's freedom? And this, this value of I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, begins to break down. And that idea of freedom the reason why it's breaking down is because it is alien to a Christian view of freedom. Because a Christian view of freedom doesn't sound a lot like freedom. Because a Christian view of freedom is slavery. I'm gonna take time to explain that this morning. Um, 
As we get into the verse of chap, start of chapter six, if you look down, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. So just as a quick recap of where we have come from, because Romans is a, is a thick book. It's a dense book. There's a lot going on in it. And Paul is starting into this chapter that we read, really running at full pace with the full flow of his argument behind him. And if you look If you look back into chapter five and look at verse 18, I'm just gonna quickly sum this up. It says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though disobedience of the one man made man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many were made righteous. So what Paul has been arguing through the previous chapter is, The gospel we believe in is not just, I come to Jesus, my sins are forgiven and the slate gets wiped clean. That's part of the gospel. That's part of it. But that isn't the whole thing. And in Ulster, often what we do is we present the gospel as, you know, you need to come to Jesus, you need to make yourself right, you need to get your sins forgiven, and then you need to try your best to behave every day because if you mess up, you're going to have to ask God for forgiveness. And why? Like, he's good for forgiving, but he'll get angry with you eventually. And that's almost the view we have of God. And popularly, I think that's the view we have of where we, we give in to the same sin again and again. And we begin to think, well, is God gonna forgive me? Because he's had to forgive me 30, 40,000 times for this. But the issue why that doesn't free us is because that isn't the gospel. It isn't, the gospel isn't just that you come to Jesus and the slate gets wiped clean. The gospel is you come to Jesus and you get given his slate, and he takes away your slate. So that whenever God looks at you, he doesn't see the sinful, guilt-ridden person that I am, but he sees all of Jesus's compassion, all of Jesus's goodness, all of Jesus's love. Because as this big word we have, righteousness, Righteousness is not synonymous with just being rid of your sin. There's a positive aspect to righteousness. It's that you're sin free, but you're also positively something. You have to be something else. And in evangelical evangelical circles, we struggle with this because often our focus is on the cross as, as it should be. Don't come away thinking that I'm saying you shouldn't be thinking about the cross, but our view of the cross is often just Jesus came so he could die and take away our sins. And we forget, why did Jesus live for 30 years before he began his ministry? Why could he not just be born, go to die on a cross for our sins, get forgiven without those, that 30 year pause? The reason is, is that for 30 years, Jesus lived the life you should have lived before he went to die the death we should have died. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins, but he actively followed every single rule of goodness and perfection on your behalf. And if you'll allow me to be really Presbyterian for a minute, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, what is justification? And it says is that justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteousness in his sight, but only because the righteousness is that of Christ's imputed, so like stuck into us. 
So the righteousness and goodness we carry around isn't our righteousness and goodness, but it's his. And that, that is, that is a, such a full view of grace. A grace where every commandment that we need to follow has already been followed on our behalf in Christ. That the listeners in Rome would have heard this and thought, well, why, why do I need to do anything then? And that's why we start in chapter six with Paul saying, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, by no means. This great high view of grace that is beyond what we would ever have thought of ourselves, rather than it causing us to say, well, that means I can free and do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody else. What it means is that we are not just freed to go and live as we want. It means we are freed from our sin. And that's the first thing this passage teaches us. So if you look down with me at verse two, it says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. The issue with our world's view of freedom of I can do what I want, when I want, when I, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, is that it isn't true freedom. Because rather than being freed to do something, we just become slaves to our internal passions and lusts and desires. So you get up on a Monday morning and you, it's a Monday where you've no work. It's a bank holiday weekend. What do you want to do? You want to lie, if you're like, maybe if you're like me, you just want to lie in bed for an extra hour or five and just, just embrace it. That's what I want to do. That's what my body wants to do. That's what my flesh and my sinful self wants to do. It doesn't want to get up and help Zoe doing something. It doesn't want to go out and do something productive. It just wants to savor and be selfish and be gluttonous. And that is, that's our, where our flesh wants to go. And what Paul is saying is we are freed from that because the sinful part of us that wanted to do that in, in a part died on the cross with Jesus. Because if you think that freedom and true freedom means that you can do what you want, when you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, is a true view of freedom, what you're going to do is you're going to place something on that inner pedestal of your life and you're not going to be, it's not that you're going to be free to do it, it's that you're going to be enslaved by it. If you've placed the career on that center pedestal in the heart of your life and you say, well, I'm free to do what I want, when I want, and what I want to do is I want to be the best at what I'm doing. But along the way, you will sacrifice family and you will sacrifice friends and relationships and so many things in your life. It's not that you're free to do it. You're enslaved by it. Like sin, sin is, a, is addictive. The things that we want to do that we know we shouldn't, they feel good. They're addictive. 
And it's not that we're free to give in to all those impulses suddenly because of Jesus. It's that we don't have to be enslaved by the impulse. So whenever sin comes knocking at our door and says, do this, do this, we don't have to listen to that voice anymore because sin doesn't own us. Sin has no authority over us anymore because sin, our sin has died with Jesus. And that's why we have baptism. Baptism is an external sign of, of marking people as being part of the community that belongs to Jesus and not to sin. And we pray that our kids will one day grow up into that sign in all its fullness and wonder. True freedom is not being able to sin when we want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. True freedom is being released from all the things that hold us back. There's a, a conservative philosopher called Roger Scruton who died recently. Um, he would have been uh, an advisor to the Conservative Party. But he writes a book on, on whether, or a chapter in a book on, are we born free? Are we born free? It's something that, freedom is something that we're given. And he says this, he says, freedom, however valuable it is, is not a gift, but it's an educational process something that we must work to acquire through discipline and sacrifice. True freedom is something that is hard work. Freedom to do and be what God made us to be is hard work, but it's still true freedom. There was a minister, um, William Still, who I know some people here would have known over in Scotland. And he was a minister who, um, whenever he was quite young in his ministry, he felt a call to celibacy. Um, he just, he knew he would never marry. And uh, a few of us were, a few ministers whenever I was in Scotland, we, we got a, a lecture of his whenever he realized this. Um, and it, it was read out to us by somebody. And he summed up the Christian life this way. The Christian rises to a day of deaths to die. Death to self, death to pride, and death to sin. And that's painful and that's hard. But that's where we find true freedom. Because it's not that our just Christian life is filled with death, but it's filled with life. If you look down with me at verse four, we see the second thing that our freedom is already won in some way. So verse four, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may have a new life. For we have been united with him in death as a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who died has been set free from sin. So some of you have been listening to what I've said so far and you're like, James, you know, this sounds lovely and all, this freedom from sin, this being freed in some way, but like I wake up and it is hard and I feel so tired of battling the sin in my life and I just feel that I'm not getting away from it in the way that I should be. Do you notice what Paul says? doesn't say, do you feel like you've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection? He says, do you know 
do you know? Because what this passage is talking about is not a list of feelings that you should have, but facts that you can look to. You know, one of the things that happened over the past 100 years is that we took a view of truth. We used to believe in um, what one of my favorite authors, Francis Schaeffer, would have called big T truth. T, truth with a capital T, truth that was big, that was transcendent, that was over everything. And suddenly, our view of truth has changed from being that big truth that's transcendent and rooted in God, and it's become in here. Um, so truth is now when we say things like, um, I feel this to be true. I feel God wouldn't do that. I think or I feel that a God, I believe in a God like this. Where truth is something that's internalized, something that we look inwardly. But if you want to get your spiritual condition, if you want to know what you, you are really like, if you want to find some religious truth, it isn't found by looking internally. It's not by found by looking in here, but it's found by looking up at him. And that's what Paul is trying to encourage these Christians to do. It's don't, don't look internally for this feeling, but look to the objective death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the proof that this has happened. Because if you look in here, what's gonna happen is we'll feel guilty. In here, we'll feel like we can never do enough to please God. In here, our spiritual walk or our relationship with God will depend on how spiritual we feel on that day, whether we did our quiet time or read for long enough that morning. But that's not how our spiritual condition is. That's not what our spiritual condition rests upon. It's not what our relationship with God rests upon. It's not what our freedom rests upon. Our freedom rests upon looking up at Him and seeing that we are truly forgiven. And that can't be taken away. That we have been shown more grace than we could ever imagine. That our relationship with God doesn't rest on our hard work and effort and earnestness. Our hard work rests on an objective work of Jesus. Something that historically, finally happened in concrete time and space. Not in an inner feeling of butterflies in our stomach. Because if we look in here, we will only be discouraged. But if we look up at him, we can only be encouraged. Because we see in him, he has done more than enough. More than enough. And that's why then, do you see in verse 15, Paul almost addresses the same question again. He says, what then shall we sin because we are, under, we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. If we have this view that our salvation is so concrete, so assured, so final, so tangible in Jesus, then it's almost as if the question crops up again in the mind of the Romans. Well, why don't we continue sin, sinning then? And Paul comes back to it and says that because you're not a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness. Now, some of you are thinking, now, James, if you're talking about freedom, like being a slave to righteousness sounds not that much like freedom. And maybe you're here and you're visiting, or maybe you're just here because somebody has invited you along and you think, well, yeah, the issue with all of you Christians, the issue with Christians is that they just give you loads of rules to follow. And it clamps down on you enjoying life. And it ruins the joy, real joy of life because you're just obsessed and you're enslaved to these laws. But that is, that is not the sort of freedom that we're saying here. It's not that you're now freed to become a slave to a big long list of rules. But rather, 
If you read from me 15, Paul says this. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that, through the, that though he, you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching which has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I am using an example in everyday life of your human limitations. But as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and increased wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. What Paul's meaning here is that you're going to be enslaved by something in your life. It'll either be the, 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 the slave of academic achievement, of getting the right results. It'll either be the slave of earning enough money so you can keep up with the Joneses on the other side of the, the street. The slave of always having the nicest thing. The slave of having people like you. The slave of, of just always having to feel like you're in control of the situation. And the Christian response to that is not, here's a whole bunch of rules that'll get you free from that. No, the Christian response to that is, when you have encountered the sort of grace that we see in this book, a grace that says the rules have been filled and completed, the, the, the rules have already been done, your slate is wiped clean, you have been given every blessing that you could ever imagine and so much more, not because you were good and not because you earned it, but because God is just that kind of gracious God who gives and gives and gives grace upon grace upon grace so that you can't help but be changed by it. This slavery to righteousness is not you must do X to get Y. This slavery to righteousness is if you have encountered this grace, you cannot help but be changed. You know, I'm not enslaved to my wife. And yet every day I will do things that I am perfectly free not to do and things I don't enjoy. Washing up is high on that list. <laughs> but I get up you know, I, I do things around the house. I, I, when it's her birthday or Valentine's Day, get her a card or a gift or something. I don't have to do it. There's no rule and there's no law. But why do I do it? It's not that I'm a slave to doing it. I do it because one of the things that is high on my list of priorities in this life is seeing, seeing my wife smile or delight about something. And so with Christians... We live not with a big long list of rules to follow, but we live with, with the idea that by following the way of righteousness, this God who has shown us so much love delights in us. I wonder if you thought that whenever you decided to come to church this morning, the God who made you in all eternity was delighted with you. It's not a slavery that says, do this, do this, so you can get this. It's he who has shown us so much love first, 
How could we not respond by wanting to see him filled with delight? Tim Keller, I'm sure a lot of you will know and have read books of, he has a great story about this. This lady who said she didn't like this understanding of the gospel, this idea of unconditional grace. And he writes, he says, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace and she replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I deserve a certain amount of a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he can't ask of me. This gospel of grace frees us because it changes us by showing us a love that we could never comprehend and we can only respond with wanting to see the delight of the one who gave it. Our God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful gift of grace and we pray that in this coming week we would realize that we want to do things and serve you in ways that bring delight and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen.